Thank you, Corral. What a, what a wonderful service we have already enjoyed uh, through uh, the reading of the Word of God, through singing together in corporate worship and in having our hearts ministered to by our choir, beautiful string ensemble and choral ensemble. Thank you. We're going to get back into our series this morning in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. If you take your Bibles and turn with me. The Bible says, repent and be converted. And so I looked up that definition. What is the word conversion? And in the English, very similar to the Greek, the word conversion is defined as the process of changing or causing something to change from one form to another. We're seeing that kind of take place in our auditorium, are we not? We've converted the lights. They're now LED lights. We've changed things around. They are of a little different nature. And so there's different things that we can do uh, to, um, to do for ministry and hopefully to enhance our live stream presence so that we can be effectual in ministry. But there are other things that are going to happen um, in the process as God provides financially for us to continue the process of changing things in the auditorium as we would renovate it. We have different screens. We have different lights for the platform. We have auditorium lights, the balconies still in process of, of getting those lights in so that they can be changed out. But things are being changed. And you know what? We are to be new creation. Second Corinthians 5.17, the Bible says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. In Acts chapter 9 today, we're going to see the conversion of the very man whom the Holy Spirit inspired to write the words of 2 Corinthians 5.17. And truly, what a testimony Paul could have given of his own life in that verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, behold, all things are become new. We're going to read through the first six verses of chapter 9 together. And then we will look at some characteristics of Saul, whom we know later as the Apostle Paul. Read with me as I'll read along. Uh, you follow silently, beginning in verse 1. And Saul, yet... Breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. I want you to see, first of all, that Saul was an enemy of the gospel. Not only did he consent to the persecution of, of the death of believers and the persecution of believers, he contributed as much as he possibly could. Lenski observes, Saul of Tarsus, this highly educated man, thought that Christianity was both wrong and deceptive. Perhaps he took his example from Phineas in the book of Numbers, who killed an immoral man and woman with a spear. And God honored his action by halting a plague. Maybe Saul thought he was trying to stop a plague of false religion. 
And so I just want to stop here this morning as we look at that. Saul was the enemy of the gospel and remind you that there are those who sincerely are opposing the gospel, thinking that they are doing service to God. That certainly was Saul's own testimony. And he was an enemy of the gospel, not just consenting or in agreement. We saw at the stoning of Stephen that the witnesses, those who bore false witness against Stephen, that gave the, the, the Pharisees and the enemies of the gospel the excuse to stone Stephen to death, they laid their coats at the feet of Saul. And remember that the one at whose feet the coats laid was actually an official consenting witness to the execution of what was considered a guilty party. We know that Stephen was stoned to death for preaching the gospel and being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul is breathing out threatenings and murders. He was not Uh, He was not doing this quietly or hidden. He was an outspoken antagonist and an enemy of the gospel. In Acts chapter 1, 8, verses 1 and 3, the Bible records, And Saul was consenting unto his death. This was concerning the stoning of Stephen. And then as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. That means to absolutely, utterly destroy. When I think of wreaking havoc, I think of wild hogs. Uh, in South Carolina, my dad had some hunting property. We go deer hunting there every year. And you could tell when there were wild hogs on the property because they would just destroy and root up and dig all over the place. They would wreak havoc. And we had to trap them or kill them or to put pressure on them to get them to move off of the hunting property. But they would wreak havoc. And to an even greater extent, Saul violently is wreaking havoc, tearing apart, shredding, uprooting families. It's interesting. The Bible says, and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. I believe it is of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pointing out something about Saul's great antagonism to the gospel. Because you understand and remember that in these times, not just in Israel, but especially outside of Israel, within the the world culture at large, women were thought of more as an object to be possessed than a person to be loved and cherished. Matter of fact, even under Jewish law, a woman was often not considered a reliable witness in criminal cases. And so the fact that Saul is not just pursuing men, he's after women, means he utterly wanted to destroy any vestige or remnant of the gospel at all. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 21, but all that heard him were amazed and said, is this not he that destroyed them? which called on this name, speaking of Jesus, in Jerusalem, and came hither to that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests. And in Acts chapter 26, as Pastor Blake read for us this morning, verses 10 and 11, Paul's own testimony was this, which thing I did in, in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Paul didn't just chase them away, he chased them down. In this instance where Saul is converted, where he comes to Christ, he is on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus. That was a 130 mile trip. It usually took six days of travel. 
Saul was going out of his way that anywhere where he heard that the gospel was spreading, he wanted to go after it and stamp it out. The Sanhedrin, you remember, were not authorized to execute anybody. Remember that? Even the crucifixion of Jesus. When they came to Pilate, they said, hey, by our law, this man ought to die. But they knew they didn't have that authority. So they were appealing to Pilate to authorize Jesus' crucifixion. So they didn't have that authority. But, but here's an interesting thought. Remember that, that Paul, Saul, uh, uh, Paul was from what city? Tarsus. And it was a Roman colony. And Saul had Roman citizenship. Remember in Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas are beaten, and then uh, there's the earthquake at midnight, the Philippian jailer and his household are saved. The next day, the magistrates sent to the jailer and said, hey, let these men go. Why? Because they just responded to kind of a a mob atmosphere. And what did Paul say? Paul said, "Uh, they have beaten us openly uncondemned being Romans, meaning we're Roman citizens. And now do they want to thrust us away privily? In other words, they just want to sweep sweep this under the rug. You see, Roman citizens had great privileges and rights. And I believe that with those privileges and rights, that, that even as in Acts chapter 16 and other passages, Paul used his Roman citizenship not to his own advantage. He could have, when they were beginning to bind him, and Silas said, hey, wait a minute, I am a Roman citizen. Are you going to beat me uncondemned? But he did not. Why? Because he was, I believe, withheld from doing that by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God intended them to be in the Philippian jail, or the Philippian jailer and all of his family would come to trust Christ. And I believe that became an evangelistic hub, a center for the spread of the gospel through that whole region, through that jail ministry. But Paul did not at that time use his Roman citizenship to protect himself from public humiliation and a beating that could have permanently crippled him. But he did use it at the end with the Roman magistrates who came personally to escort them out of the city. Why? Because Paul knew that they would be very careful not to attack the church in a careless way, not knowing who they might be dealing with. But I believe that Saul, before his conversion, used his Roman citizenship to have influence because I believe that we see in these passages that he was contributing towards their death. I believe that as a Jew, but with Roman citizenship, he was proposing the idea and coming up with all kinds of arguments because Paul was a brilliant scholar. And as Saul, he was brilliant. He was, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, touching the law blameless. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Uh, he persecuted the way above any of his peers. I mean, he was proactive. He went to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin did not come to Saul and say, Hey, Saul, we need a hitman for our cause to wipe out these Christians. Will, will you be the guy? They did not offer him a bounty and say, Hey, we'll pay you so much for every Christian that you can get arrested. No, Saul went to them and received from them letters of authority that he could go to other cities where the Sanhedrin still did not have direct authority. They had authority in the synagogues and they would be listened to by the Jewish population in whatever city. And so he took those letters to empower him to be able to pursue and to persecute. He was a strong enemy of the gospel. But then Saul was converted by the power of the gospel. Look again, if you would, beginning in verse 3. The Bible says, And as he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly there shined round him a light from heaven. I believe this is the glory of Christ shining down, and it is so beautiful and so powerful and so supernatural that Paul falls to the ground. And those who are with him fall to the ground. 
And he's confronted by this flashing light. And this word in the Greek is the idea of lightning. I believe it talks both of the suddenness and of the brightness of this light that shone. But it didn't just flash for an instant. It was a light that came and stayed. would have had the brilliance of lightning. It came all of a sudden in a flash, but it stayed and it continued. And Paul is on the ground, or Saul is on the ground. And remember that the Bible that Saul gives a testimony of this happened in the middle of the day and that it was stronger, this light was stronger than the sun shining at full strength. This is the glory of the resurrected Son of God. And in fear and awe at the appearance of Jesus Christ in his glory, Saul falls to the ground. And then Jesus Christ, Yahweh, the I am, confronts him. The Bible says... In verse 4, that Jesus said to him, this voice, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Saul knew that this was divine glory that was confronting him. And Jesus identifies himself as the son of God, the king of glory. And Saul is on the ground before him. It is hard for you, Jesus says, to kick against the pricks or the goads. A goad was a sharpened staff that a farmer would use to poke the haunches of the oxen. Usually we'd have two oxen in a yoke. They'd be pulling a plow or a wagon. And when they decided they didn't want to move or they didn't want to go very fast and the farmer wanted them to go faster, he would just poke them really good with that goad. And sometimes that old ox would try to kick back against it. And it wouldn't do him any good because the farmer could see it coming and dodge out of the way. Or if he knocked the stick out, he'd just pick it up and he'd just poke him again. And the more that ox would kick, the more that he'd get poked. And it's speaking to the conviction. As the, if the ox kicked against the, the goat, he only got poked harder. And the work in the Holy Spirit in Saul's heart, from the, I believe from the preaching of Stephen, I believe that Saul heard the preaching of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 what a powerful message that Stephen by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit preaches and I believe that there's conviction that fills Saul's heart he witnessed his death he saw that and he heard the prayer what did preven, what did, what did what did Stephen pray for those who were stoning him to death Lord, lay not their sin to their charge. Who was the official witness approving of his stoning? Saul. Stephen is praying for the witnesses. He's praying for every hand, every person who threw a stone against him. And he's praying for Saul who is consenting to his death. I believe he saw Stephen when Stephen saw the heavens open and he saw the Son of God and he specifically describes him. And I see, think that he sees as Stephen lays down and dies as a martyr. He saw a confidence and a peace that Stephen had in the Son of God. Maybe that's part of the reason why he so violently persecuted the church was he was so strongly trying to run away or fight from that conviction. And it seemed like the more he persecuted and tried to move away from that the more God sent conviction into his life. Think of this. As Saul would arrest and bind and bring people and have them cast in prison, 
he saw there a love and a loyalty for God and, and, and a steadfastness and a peace which comes as the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these believers and everyone that he imprisoned, everyone that he persecuted, everyone that, that died for the cause of Christ, that, that saw, witnessed, I believe, added to that conviction, the Spirit of God continuing to work in his heart. And you know what that speaks to me? It speaks to me that there are those who are outspoken enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are those who hate what we stand for and what we live and who we love. Does that cause us then to want to attack them, to discredit them, to debate them and, and try to embarrass them by humiliating them with our answers? Cause us to react to them as they react to us. No, what did Jesus command us to do to our enemies? Love your enemies. Because God can take a violent enemy of the gospel like Saul. And we cannot see the work that God is doing in that person's heart. Where at this very moment, they may be a persecutor and an enemy and violently in opposition to the gospel. And by our Christ-like response, by our loving example, by our proclaiming the gospel, though that may just cause them to be even more vindictive and, and hateful against us, God may be working in their heart to bring them to repentance. Jesus knows and calls Saul by name. Did you notice that? He says, Saul, Saul. Why persecutest thou me? You know, he reveals himself to Saul in that very question. Saul says, who art thou, Lord? <laughs> How do you know my name? I'm God. I am Jesus, the Son of God. I am one with the Father. I am Yahweh. It is evident from his questions that Saul now believed that Jesus is the living Son of God and the way of salvation. I wrote down this thought this week as I was meditating on this passage. Can you imagine at that moment the awful awareness in the heart of Saul that by persecuting the followers of Jesus, he had been persecuting God the Son? I mean, Jesus said, why do you persecute me? And you know, there is also a wonderful comfort in that, that Jesus identifies with his church with his bride. Remember, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Our high priest, our savior, our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, knows and loves and cares for us. But imagine that awful awareness. There's no argument on the part of Saul. There, there's no reconciling of his former religious convictions against the claims of Christ and his gospel, only a submission by Saul that was generated by faith in Jesus Christ. Saul, the brazen blasphemer, the enemy of Christ, now worships in deepest reverence the one and only Savior. Why? Third point, because Saul was conquered by the Lord of the gospel. Look again in verse 6. 
And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Although Saul had to choose to respond and to believe in Christ, Jesus intercepted, confronted, called, and commissioned him. Saul is humbled by the risen Lord. And now as Jesus' follower, Saul is willing and ready to do whatever the King of Kings and Lord of Lords commands. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? One pastor said this, if the gospel is so powerful that it can take public enemy number one and so radically convert him that he not only becomes a sheep, but a shepherd of the sheep, isn't that evidence of the power of the gospel? Galatians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, Paul, writing to the Galatians, says this, And they heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed, and they glorify God in me. So I have three admonitions for you this morning. Number one, have confidence in the resurrected Jesus. He is able to save anyone. Matthew Henry said, let us not despair of renewing grace for the conversion of the greatest sinners, nor, nor let such despair of the pardoning mercy of God for the greatest sin. Two things, friend, if you are here this morning or watching by way of live stream, and you would say, I have sinned too terribly, too deeply, too often, too much, too horribly for God to ever forgive me. That is false. You know what Paul called himself? The chiefest of sinners. If Paul, if God can save Paul, the chiefest of sinners, and Paul wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if God can forgive and convert and use Saul and transform him to the apostle Paul, God can save you. He can transform your life. But also, my friend, you may have a brother, a sister, a mom, a dad, a grandpa, a grandma, a co-worker. You might have a child or a grandchild. And maybe right now they would be what you would consider antagonistic to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you with this. Don't stop praying for them. Amen. Remember what our ensemble just saying, touching the heart of God through prayer. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord's hand is not, his ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. His arm is not shortened that it cannot save. Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, would draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus died and rose again. And he can save anyone. Even that child, that friend, that relative, that coworker that neighbor, that enemy. So don't stop praying for them. Remember that Jesus, in indicating to Paul, Saul, it is hard for thee to kick against the goads, very clearly indicates that there was a whole process under which the Spirit of God was working in conviction and, and, and in laying out the evidence for the authenticity of the gospel and that Jesus is the resurrected Lord and that, and that Saul was wrong and it was leading up to that point of confrontation. Pray that God would do that work. 
And remember that you might be a vital part in that, just as the Christians who were persecuted and even died, just like Stephen, who proclaimed the gospel clearly. So your life, whether by a witness and a testimony or a life that shows evidence of the genuine saving transforming converting power of the gospel or whether it is you suffer and you love your enemies you do good to those that hate you you pray for them which despitefully use you and abuse you continuing to believe that god can take the enemy of the gospel and save their soul and you ask god to give you grace to endure with patience that persecution so that you may be found faithful For God allowed you to be there and to be a part of the process of an enemy of the gospel being conquered by the King of Kings, gloriously saved and redeemed. Do not give up on anybody for the gospel power. Evidence is the glory of God and God's glory is infinite. Have confidence in the resurrected Jesus. He's able to save anyone, even you. Or even that person that right now, you wonder how in the world could they ever be saved. They are such an antagonist, such an enemy of the gospel. Number two, if you've never been converted, believe on the resurrected Jesus. Saul, now Paul, wrote in Romans chapter 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It is simply humbling yourself before God, acknowledging you're a sinner, helpless in any way, powerless in any way to earn eternal life or impress God with your own righteousness. But it is only as you acknowledge the sacrifice of Christ who died and rose again that you can have eternal life and call to Christ, the one who suffered in your place, who paid the price that you could never pay, the one who died and rose again. Call to him. Believe on him. Be converted. And number three, take comfort in the resurrected Jesus who identifies with his persecuted people. In Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39, the Bible says this. Again, this is Paul writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the Romans. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword For thy sake we are killed all the day long. I wonder as Paul is writing that if his thoughts went back to the believers who might have thought this as he was persecuting them or witnessing unto their death. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Shall we bow our heads this morning? We will have a come forward invitation this morning. Our pastors will be at the front. Our pianists will play a hymn of invitation. And in a moment when we stand, at, when I indicate with our heads bowed and the pianist begins to play, I invite you to come here and kneel at these steps and turn them into an altar, or if you can't kneel because of physical limitations, but you'd like to come here to the front pew and sit and pray, and maybe there's somebody that you specifically want to pray for. 
Maybe there's a situation in which you're being persecuted and you just want to thank the Lord that he identifies with his persecuted people and that he, nothing can separate you from his love and just ask him in his grace to strengthen you and enable you to continue to faithfully suffer under that persecution with the love of Christ as a faithful witness. If you'd say, Pastor Todd, I need that converting, transforming power. I'm a sinner. I'm condemned to eternal death. But I realize that just like Jesus loved Saul, even though Saul was his enemy and had sinned against him and had persecuted him and his people, I realize I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior. And I believe Jesus is the Son of God. He's a living Son of God and I want to trust Him. Would you come this morning, just walk down to the front of the aisle, come to one of the pastors and say, I want to trust Jesus as my Savior. And we'll have someone take the Word of God and take you to a quiet place and show you the way of salvation. Brothers and sisters, maybe there's some other burden on your heart you'd like to come and pray. If you'd like someone to pray with you, if there's something going on in your life where you would like to seek some biblical counsel, please come this morning so that we can help you with your need. Our Father, now we give this invitation into your hands. We thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you, Lord, how you intercepted and conquered and converted and commissioned the Saul, the enemy of the gospel, who became an apostle and a great warrior for your kingdom. Oh Lord, we are in spiritual warfare, but the enemy is not people. The enemy is the devil. The enemy is false religion and lies. And oh Father, we pray that you would use us to draw people to Christ and that we would be patient under persecution so that others would allow the Spirit of God to continue to work in their heart to the point where they would come and trust Him. Lord, would you be honored as we respond in our hearts to you this morning. Give courage to those who need to come forward and pray or get help in Jesus' name. Our heads are bowed. Would you stand with me as our pianist begins to play?